When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Hello all, and welcome to another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. I'm very pleased to have Ellen J. Green as my guest. She is a best-selling author with an MFA degree in creative writing. She has also worked in the psychiatric ward of a maximum security correctional facility for 15 years. She is here to talk about her book, Murder in the Neighborhood, the true story of America's first recorded mass shooting. So great to have you here with me today. Thank you. No, thank you for having me. So you first heard this story through your mother. Is that correct? Yes. My mother was living in East Camden at the time, which is right across the railroad tracks from where this occurred. And this had never happened before, that she, ever. So she was so fascinated by the whole thing that she started saving. She started getting the newspaper and cutting out the clippings and putting them in a book because she was just so interested in it. And her mother told her to stop. This is morbid. You can't do this. So she had told me about it when I was little that she had been there. She wasn't physically there, but she wasn't that far away. And I, I started working in Camden in the correctional facility and had access to these prosecutors that had worked on the case and the physical locality where it happened wasn't that far away. And so something just ignited my interest and I started doing research on it. So this neighborhood was, is called Kramer Hill. And the focus of the story is a little section of that neighborhood. Uh, could you describe it for us, this block or so of, of businesses and homes where these events took place? Yeah, so this happened in 1949. And in 1949, that area was very reminiscent of what you would think of as Brooklyn, New York, where the houses were all very close together. There were a lot of mom and pop shops with people living upstairs. And that block had uh, five businesses all lined up along one side of the street. It was a pharmacy 
which was sort of hard to explain because it was a twin building. There was a pharmacy on one side, and then there was what was a, a butcher shop on the other side, and there were families living above. And Howard Unruh, who was a 28-year-old 20, World War II veteran, lived in the apartment next to the pharmacy. Okay, and next to that was a barber shop, and then a cobbler, and then a dry cleaner, and then a, a luncheonette. And all of this happened within those string of buildings. Very, very close together. So the morning that this incident occurred, he came out of his apartment and literally in 12 minutes walked down the street from business to business and killed 13 people. Yeah, it, it was something so shocking in 1949. People were not used to picking up a paper and being greeted with a, a tragedy quite like this. No, certainly there was gun violence. You know, I think there's been gun violence as long as there's been guns, but no, but killing, it was always secondary to something else, uh, domestic violence, robbery. People didn't just go out into the streets and start killing people. And what was so unusual about this is he was killing people randomly. Um, three children died, uh, three, five women, five men, three children were killed in that short space of time. So would you tell us about the people that lived and worked in that little section of Kramer Hill? Yeah, so Howard Unruh lived, like I said, in a twin building. And the people on the other side that, that operated the pharmacy and they also lived upstairs were the Cohen family. Um, it was Maurice Cohen, his wife Rose. They had a 12-year-old son, Charles, and their, uh, Maurice's mother lived there as well. Her name was Minnie. There was a lot of conflict between Howard and the Cohen family. The Cohen family was sort of the crux of this whole incident um, that, that had happened and developed over maybe two or three years when he came back from the war. He started becoming very paranoid. He felt that they were doing things to him. Some of that was justified. I, they did not like him. And they would say things to him to agitate him. Um, Next to Unruh's house was the barber shop. The barber's name was Clark Hoover. And in doing research for this book, it was very interesting because I didn't intend to really focus so much on these victims. But the stories of the victims were almost as interesting as Howard himself. This barber had been arrested for running this Fagan ring with these boys in the neighborhood of smashing into... Um, gas stations breaking in and stealing uh, gas rationing coupons, which were extremely valuable at the time. He also kind of had a history of fist fighting and, and just kind of not a nice man, and he wasn't very nice to Howard. So when Howard Unruh decided that he was going to get back at all these neighbors, he made a list. He actually made a list. I think there were nine people on the list. And so on the list were the Coens, the whole family, and then the barber, Clark Hoover, and then next to Clark Hoover, Hoover was John Polarchik. John Polarchik was a cobbler who ran this shoe shop. And he was really angry at Polarchik because he said Polarchik was, was making up rumors about him, was dumping trash in his yard, was doing some construction so there was water running into his basement. It was a lot of tr some trivial things, but the real point was that Howard Unruh was petrified 
that people in the neighborhood would find out that he was gay. And this was a huge thing because it was illegal in 1949. And he thought that people were going to find out that he was going to get arrested, that they were going to follow him, that they were in his business. And so he was focusing on John Polarczyk because he said John Polarczyk was whispering about him being with other men. But all this other stuff, too, you know, the garbage, the water. And so that played into it. And then next to him was Thomas Zagrino and his son, David Zagrino, that ran a dry cleaning shop and they lived upstairs. Um, it was the sort of the same thing. He was upset. He said that they were not only dumping trash and water, but that they were making up rumors that he had been in some alley with a man. He said that they were disparaging his character. So he was very upset at them. Now, on the day of the shootings, Thomas Agrino and his son David were not there. So he shot Thomas Agrino's wife, Helga, had only been married to her about a month, and she had nothing to do with any of this. So, um, yeah. And then on the other side was, um, a, a luncheonette owner who he was not affected at all. He tried to break in, but nobody was killed in that building. So why was Unruh so disliked by his neighbors? It was so interesting because he was, um, when Howard Unruh went off to the war, he was a tank gunner in the battle of the bulge, which was this horrible battle towards the end of the war. When he came back, everybody said that he was different. He was quieter. He was more aloof. He was more paranoid. He didn't like people. He would. He was actually a very quiet man. So I can't say that he would ever start arguments with people, but um, he would get upset about petty things, things that if somebody gave him, shortchanged him, you know, most people would think it's just a mistake. No, he would write it in his diary. And he would hold on to it and he would hold all these grudges. So he, he wasn't very a, pl a pleasant person probably to be around. And he would create a lot of dissension amongst people. And he had all these reasons that made sense to him in his head. But to the other people, they were just going about living their lives, you know, and they didn't really know anything about it. And he was unemployed, right? He lived with his mother. Yes, when he came back from the war, he got uh, part of the GI Bill. He got money to go to school, and he wanted to become a pharmacist. So he went to Temple University and enrolled in these classes that he had to take to go to pharmacy school, and he was very successful. He was a very bright man. He enrolled in, actually in the pharmacy school, and things started unraveling. Now, wh why that is, I don't know. There was something, if you pinpoint and you look at his records, Everything seemed to kind of fall apart right at that time. He flunked out of school. He couldn't keep a job. You know, he wasn't married. He was just sort of hanging around. And he was going to Philadelphia a lot. He would wait for the bus and he would go to Philadelphia. And the reason he had an apartment in Philadelphia that his mother did not know about. And I think it costs him $23 a month or something for this apartment in Philadelphia. But he was seeing men there. And he thought it was, he was being secretive. But other than that, he really wasn't doing much with his life. And his mother uh, was working, paying the bills, and they lived in an apartment with a very inconvenient way in and out. Uh, can you explain how their yard was connected to the Cohen's yard and how they had to navigate this muddy lot to get in and out? Yes. The way the building's constructed, 
It was a twin building with businesses on the bottom and apartments on the top. And it was right on the corner of 32nd and River Road. So the Coens had the apartment and the business that was right on that corner. So when they came out, they actually had access through their business to the front yard. They could go out a side door and get to 32nd Street. They could go out their back door and they had a gate right there. But when the when the neighborhood kind of built up around it, the person, the family that was living in that other side of the twin, when they came out their back door, they had no way to get to the street. The only way that they could get to the street is to cut across the Cohen's patio and use their gate. If the Cohen's blocked access, the only other way to get to the street was to walk behind the barber shop and behind the um, shoe shop through this muddy lot. It was filled with, with water when it rained and mud and grass and snow. And they had to walk through that to get to this alleyway to get out to River Road. And that created an enormous problem for Howard and his mother because the Coens at some point became so angry, they said they could no longer use their patio. They could not walk across their patio to get to that street. So they had to, every time they came in and out, they had to go through this lot. So one day, Howard Unruh decides that he is going to solve this issue. And it ends up being the day before the shooting, right? That he goes out and builds a gate. Yes. So at the very, if he walked out of his back door and walked straight in the, in the backyard was probably maybe 20 feet long. There was a fence line along the back and Howard's um, father, who was sort of estranged, he didn't live there. And a neighbor thought, well, maybe we can resolve this whole issue by putting in a gate at the back of this yard. And then Howard and his mother could just use that gate and they could walk down this driveway of this other house and they could get to the street in a couple minutes and not have to have anything to do with the Coens or their patio or anything. So on Labor Day... Howard's father was over, the friend was over, and they spent the day building this gate into the backyard. And they thought everything's solved, things are going to be fine. So Howard left at some point around 7 o'clock at night to go to the movies in Philadelphia where he had planned to meet somebody. He was there till quite late because he, the person he was going to meet didn't show up. And he was sort of stewing about that. So he was already angry. So he comes back and somebody in the neighborhood had ripped out his gate and ripped part of his fence. And this just set him off. This was like a firecracker in his mind. You know, he had suffered through all this stuff. I want to say the people in the neighborhood were not nice to him. They, they bullied him. They threw things at him. They called him names. They called him Nancy boy, Mary, sissy. You know, they made fun of the way he walked. So in his mind, you know, I, I go to build this gate that I think is going to solve all these problems, and now they've ripped out my gate. He decided then, when he came home, it was about 2.30 in the morning, that he was going to wait for them, and he was going to wait till the shops opened, and he was going to make them pay. And he, and he had quite an arsenal of weapons in his home, correct? Yes, he had collected a lot of weapons from the war. Um, but the weapon that he used that day was a Luger, a 9 millimeter Luger that he had actually purchased in Philadelphia for $37.50, I have to say. Um, but yes, he did have an arsenal in his house of weapons that he had collected. And he would target practice in his basement. Was it Mr. Cohen, right, that, that complained about the noise? 
Yes. So he was down there and they said that when the bullets, he had a target set up with a bunch of newspapers behind it. But when the bullet missed and it hit the concrete, you know, it would shake. It, was, it would make people want to jump out of their shoes. And Unruh blamed the Coens for the missing gate. Is that right? He talked to his mother that morning. And yes, he, he did think that the Coens possibly took it. You know, he also blamed the other neighbors. He said maybe it was the, the barber and maybe it was the cobbler and, you know, maybe it was the dry cleaner because he had broken up some lumber of theirs because he was angry about some construction project. So he thought that maybe they had all conspired against him. He wasn't quite sure who did it. So you tell this story in a very unique way. You're a, a fiction writer, right? Yes. Yeah, the story is told in part from the perspective of a young boy named Raymond, who, who had a fairly friendly relationship with Howard Unruh. Can, can you explain that? Um, not only your decision to write the book this way, but also the relationship between these two. Yeah, so when I was started to do research on this, I wasn't quite sure what I was going to do with all of this and how I was going to put it on the page. You know, my background is I, I've written four fic pieces of fiction, and I had never written nonfiction before, and I did start the book and try to write it as straight nonfiction. And when I was doing research, this boy, Raymond Haven's name kept popping up over and over again, that he was there, that Howard looked at him and raised the gun but didn't shoot him, that he knew him, that he used to go in there and talk to him, that he probably knew him better than most people and that he was trading these stamps, and on and on, and it kept coming up and coming up. And I thought, I need to talk to this man, because this would just be a great perspective to tell the story. So I was looking all over, and I could not find him. And finally, I stumbled upon one of his relatives and said, the reason you can't find him is he doesn't live in this country. He's living, he was in the service and married a woman from the United Kingdom and settled there and had two children. So then I went on a search for him in the United Kingdom. Well, he had passed away, but I did get in touch with his daughter. And so I kept going through these police reports and these newspaper articles and magazine articles and talking to his daughter. And I thought, let me try and build this story through the perspective of Raymond and just tell it the way he would have seen it play out. And so that's what I did. And I wasn't sure how it was going to play on the page. But the one thing that I wanted more than anything was to kind of bring back that 1949 feel of what it was like in that neighborhood at that time. And so I felt like this is, this really kind of works towards that end. Yeah, that makes sense. So would you walk us through the morning of September 6th, 1949? How did this horrible day unfold? Okay. So... Howard Unruh came home from the movies at 2.30 in the morning. He saw his gate had been ripped out. He was extremely angry. He decided at that moment that he was going to kill these people. Um, he went to bed. He actually went upstairs and went to bed and left a note for his mother to wake him up. He planned it so that the shops would all be open. He wanted to make sure that everybody was there on his list. He waited until it started, I think, around 9.20. He took two clips and some loose um, bullets. I think he had 33 bullets total. Loaded his Luger. He also had a machete, but he chose not to take that with him. He left his apartment, went through the lot. 
and he was very meticulous about this when I was reading his hospital records. There was a reason, the order that he killed them, because he knew that if he had killed the Cohens first, Polarchik, the cobbler, would get away. And he wanted to make sure that he killed the cobbler because he assumed that if the Cohens heard the noise, they would run upstairs in their apartment, which is exactly what they did, and he would be able to get them later. So he went through the lot. He started at the cobbler's shop. He walked in, and without a word, he shot John Polarchik. There was a boy in there as well, but he didn't even notice the boy. He walked out. He walked into the, to the barbershop. Clark Hoover had a little boy on the hobby horse that he used to cut kids' hair. The kid was sitting. His name was Oris Smith. He was sitting on the hobby horse. The best that I could gather from reading everything, he really was not aiming for Oris Smith. He was aiming for Clark Hoover, but Clark Hoover was sort of dipping and dodging around that hobby horse, and he ended up um, shooting Oris Smith in the neck, who slumped off the horse. His mother grabbed him and ran out of the building with him. He shot Clark Hoover. Then he walked out into the street. Now, people were starting to notice, like, what is that? Is this car backfiring? So people on the block were starting to be aware of what was happening at that point. He walked down, and there was an insurance man, James Hutton, who was, had pulled up in front and went in to get a Coca-Cola in this drugstore. And he was walking into the building, and he saw he had heard the shots, and he saw Howard Unruh coming, and he saw he had his Luger out. They knew each other. That was Unruh's insurance man. Um, James Hutton had tried to help Howard Unruh on a number of occasions, had sat in his apartment with him. This wasn't somebody that was bothering him. But for whatever reason, Howard Unruh was just spiraling. He asked James Hutton to move. He didn't move fast enough, so he shot him on the steps. Then he stepped over his body. By Howard Unruh's own account, at this point, everything spiraled. He didn't really know or care who he was shooting. So we went up to the apartment. He shot Rose Cohen through the closet door where she was hiding. He shot Maurice Cohen off the back of the roof, who landed sort of in the street. He went into the middle bedroom and shot Minnie Cohen, the grandmother. Um, Charles Cohen, who was 12 years old, is sort of an interesting character in the story because he was there. Um, there are some accounts that put him in a closet. His very first statement, he was standing in the hallway when this all happened. But Howard Unruh didn't shoot him. He was the only surviving member of that family. He went down the steps then, Howard Unruh, and went outside. He went across the street and was trying to get into a grocery store. And there was a car coming with two women and a little boy. And he just turned around and shot them and killed all three of them. And then there was another man coming the other way and sort of slowed because he was concerned because he saw this body laying on the steps of the drugstore. So Howard Unruh shot him. His name was Alvin Day. He then walked down the street again, past the barbershop and the dry cleaner, and went into the dry cleaner shop looking for Thomas Zagrino, but Thomas Zagrino was not there, and his son wasn't there. So he went in the back where Helga Zagrino was there, apparently on her knees begging for her life, and he shot her. He also then walked back up and shot Tommy Hamilton, who was a two-year-old who was in a crib in the window, and he was sort of peering out. Howard saw the, wind, the curtains moving and didn't even know who it was and shot through and hit him in the head. And then he was kind of finished, so he went back down the alley. 
he went through and then he went to the house that sat right behind his. If you look at a map, there was a house that sat right behind his and went into the house where this mother and son were eating breakfast. He didn't kill them, though, which is interesting because he easily could have. He was a marksman. He shot them both in the arm. At that point, he was just winding down. He, he was done. He came out. He went back through his yard, went into his house, locked the door, and by some accounts went to bed and waited for the police. He also fired uh, randomly at a second car, right? Yes. He fired, uh, there was a, he, all 33 bullets he used and he did, he fired randomly. He also, I always forget to mention a Charles Peterson got hit in the heel, um, in this, but wasn't killed. Uh, he shot at him. He shot at some cars. He shot at people on the street, but he didn't hit anybody. We will return momentarily. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jane Perlez longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. Throughout history, royals across the world were notorious for incest. They married their own relatives in order to consolidate power and keep their blood blue. But they were oblivious to the havoc all this inbreeding was having on the health of their offspring. From Egyptian pharaohs marrying their own sisters to the Habsburgs' notoriously oversized lower jaws, I explore the most shocking incestuous relationships and tragically inbred individuals in royal history. And that's just episode one. On the History Tea Time podcast, I profile remarkable queens and LGBTQ plus royals, explore royal family trees, and delve into women's medical history and other fascinating topics. I'm Lindsay Holiday, and I'm spilling the tea on history. Join me every Tuesday for new episodes of the History Tea Time podcast, wherever fine podcasts are enjoyed. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? 
Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Back again. He had plans for the machete. Correct. Uh, he was going to use it to decapitate the Coens. Yes, he had bought he bought this machete at LL Bean. I didn't know LL Bean existed back then, but I guess they did. So he bought this machete with the purpose. He had it in his closet, and he was going to um, attack the Coens. That was his plan. He was going to uh, he was going to decapitate them. So, how long did it take for the police to respond? The police started getting calls and they started responding and all available units arrived on scene. And when they got there, I would say it was within 10, 15 minutes. Um, he had barricaded himself in his apartment and they were firing. They didn't know what to do. So they started firing at the building itself. So for a long time, if you walk down the street, you could look up and see all the pockmarks in the building where the police had just randomly started firing. They were trying to get him out of the apartment. They lobbed tear gas in through his bedroom window. You know, they were obviously shooting at him. He did not fire on the police. There was no standoff where he was firing back. He was just in there. And at some point, he put a white flag out the window saying he wanted to surrender and his arrest was extremely peaceful. They let him come down. There's a picture of him being arrested and they just cuffed him at his back door. There was no um, fighting. There was no aggression, nothing. They put him in the patrol car and took him downtown. Did anyone try calling him while he was hiding in his apartment? There is a story. There was a, a story of a reporter calling him and him picking up the phone. Now, whether that's true, I don't know. But there is a story that a reporter had called him and asked him, what are you doing? And he said, I, I forget his response. Well, you know, I'm holding them off and, you know, they're trying to get me or some exchange like that. Yes. So after police removed him from the apartment, they went in, of course, to investigate, gather evidence. What did they find? Um, they found, uh, he left his weapons. There were a bunch of weapons in his room. He had the back bedroom. Um, he had, there was a trunk full of his belongings. There was a diary, his diary that he had kept from before the war filled with all of these thoughts, these, uh, you know, what the neighbors had done to him and what he was going to do to them. And I think that's about it in terms of what they found. All of his machete and his weapons, of course, were in his room. So what was his mother doing during all of this? His mother. So what had happened was when he woke up that morning and he left a note for her, can you wake me up? And she came down. She had no clue what was going on. He asked her to make him breakfast, which she did. 
And then he got up from the table and went down to the basement and got this um, socket, this huge pipe wrench, and came upstairs and he was like holding it over his head like he was going to hit her. And she said she knew there was something wrong. He had this blank look in his face and she kept asking, why do you want to do that? What do you want to do that for, Howard? What do you want to do that for? She knew there was something very wrong and she backed up towards the door and was able to get outside and ran down the street to her friend's house. When she got to her friend's house, she heard the gunshots and she knew it was him. Wow. <laughs> so he's taken to the local police station for questioning. Did he talk? Uh, did he confess right away? Oh, yeah. There's, there's a whole confession. It's like 62 pages where he was quite matter of fact about everything he did. He said, you know, I'm going to tell you the truth and I'm going to tell you what I did. The confession was taken probably within half an hour, 45 minutes of this event. Uh, but part of the, the problem you write with that initial, that, that initial confession was that partway through it, police noticed that he was bleeding. Yeah, he, somebody shot him. They're not, still not sure who it was because they never got the bullet out. But somebody had wounded him in the buttocks. And when they were interrogating him and Mitchell Cohen, who was no relation to the Cohen family at all, he was the district attorney, comes in to interview him. And partway through, he's bleeding all over the chair and, and down onto the floor from this bullet wound. But they said he was just completely like a flat affect. He had no emotion, no expression. He didn't say it hurt. So they were thinking there's something really wrong with him. We need to get him over to Cooper Hospital and get that treated. So they asked him why he did it. What was his answer? He said, they took my gate. They took my gate. They've been bothering me and I was going to get them back. And when they told him the whole sequence of events and all the people that had been killed, he had no recollection of ever shooting any of the children. At least that's what he said. He said, I wasn't aiming for them. I didn't intend to kill the children, but the rest of them deserved it. Um, he didn't. You know, when they said, well, you, why did you shoot these two women and this child in the car? You don't even know them. He couldn't really answer. He just said, I don't know. I don't know. So this case seemed pretty cut and dry for investigators. Uh, eyewitnesses, full confession, motive. It, it seemed likely he would be tried, convicted, and executed, right? Yes. And at that time, between conviction and execution, which was the electric chair, usually it wasn't as long as it is today. It was usually a year or less. You know, it was pretty quick. And the district attorney at the time thought, well, you know, he's got, he's confessed. There's, there's so many witnesses to this. This is a slam dunk. But what happened was when he got to the hospital and they did surgery to try to get the bullet out, which they did, they could never get the bullet out, um, and they were treating him. They made a decision because of how bizarre this was and because of his demeanor in the police station that they would call these four psychiatrists in to evaluate him. They sent him up to Trenton Psychiatric Hospital. So the psychiatrists were evaluating him. Uh, he, they had in murder indictments against him, but physically he was at Trenton Psychiatric Hospital. And these four psychiatrists were talking to him and trying to evaluate him and figure out what to do. I think it was October 8th, they made this decision. The district, district attorney made the decision to circumvent the whole legal process 
and just have him committed to the hospital indefinitely rather than put him in jail. They could have put him in jail and had psychiatrists see him there and do sort of a competency evaluation to determine whether he was, you know, not guilty by reason of insanity or something like that, but he still would have been incarcerated. But they decided they were just going to bypass that whole system and just commit him to the hospital. So these psychiatric evaluations revealed some really interesting details about his relationships with with both his mother and father and how these relationships might have contributed to his mental state during his murder spree. You know, it was interesting because at the time they were using narcosynthesis, which is um, they would administer sodium amytal to patients because they thought it disinhibited them and they could get the truth out of them. But really what it did is sort of blurred fantasy with reality. And they stopped doing that in 1952. They just found it wasn't useful. But at the time, that's what they were doing. And there were all these reports where he was on sodium amytal and he was talking a a lot about this bizarre relationship he had with his mother. It wasn't really incestuous, but it sort of bordered that. They were entwined with one another. Um, You know, he had been sleeping in his mother's bed until he was about 13, 14, 15 years old. Um, They were very connected. The father was just disgusted with the whole thing and left um, the family and went and found jobs, you know, out on dredging ships. That's what he was doing as a cook to kind of get away from the whole thing. Um, He had always been sort of an odd child and his mother probably had some mental health issues herself. When you read the report, she was extremely anxious and nervous and very dependent on Howard as well. So what was his diagnosis? They diagnosed him in 1949 with dementia praecox, which is another word for schizophrenia. Um, And that's the diagnosis he carried throughout the time that he was in the hospital. And I have to say, he never did get out of the hospital. They kept him in the hospital. And in 1980, they dropped all the murder indictments. So he just stayed there um, until he passed away in 2009. He always carried the diagnosis of schizophrenia. But the diagnosis, I have to say, never really completely fit because he didn't have any of the the classic signs of schizophrenia. He didn't hear voices. He wasn't delusional. He was paranoid, but a lot of that paranoia was justified. If you read a lot of the reports and the things that he was saying, you know, a lot of it was true. Um, But he was had sort of a paranoid coloring to the way he saw the world. Um, But that's the diagnosis they gave him. And they did when medications became available, they did treat him with with medications to treat schizophrenia. So how did his mother learn about his secret life? And what was her reaction when she was told? So his mother didn't know anything about it until after this, this whole incident. And the police told her. And she was an extremely religious woman. I mean, she was somebody that was at church every day. She went to Bible study. Um, I don't think she could even really conceptualize what he was doing. And she was stunned. Um, she just couldn't believe that her son would do this. She really didn't believe it until he told her himself that, yes, it's true. I think she was more upset in some ways to find out that he had been engaging in this homosexual behavior than she was about the fact that he had killed all these people. And his mom believed that he, his spiral had really begun after 
or because he had quit attending church. Yes. When he came back from the war, it wasn't right away, but there was like this gradual, gradually he sort of distanced himself from the church. You know, he used to be seen walking around the neighborhood with the Bible under his arm. You know, he was going to Bible study all the time. That had sort of stopped at the time of this incident. Yes. And she believed that that had to do with the fact that he um, didn't go to church, that, you know, he was engaging in all these activities. Um, you know, the devil had gotten him and all of that. So what do we know about his experience during the war and whether trauma, uh, PTSD was a contributor in all of this? Yeah, he was in the Battle of the Bulge. He was um, a tank gunner, and it was a particularly brutal battle in northern France and Switzerland and Germany where he actually witnessed and was forced to kill prisoners of war, which really affected him. And he talked about that and he felt, he said when he came back, he felt like God had left him at that point. He didn't see that there was a God anymore after having gone through all of that. I mean, there were, if you read about the Battle of the Bulge, these soldiers, you know, it was bitter winter, brutally cold. A lot of them had frostbite and lost limbs. They didn't eat for days at a time. It was just awful. And Yes, he was said he was forced to kill these prisoners of war, and a lot of them were very young. You know, the Germans were using children at that time, you know, 13, 14, 15-year-old kids, and he had seen them shot, and he talked a lot about that in his hospital records. Did he ever show remorse for what he had done? No. Um, he always said he was sorry he, chilled, he killed the children. He had a very shallow... Um, emotions. You didn't get a whole lot of emotional response from him. So, you know, he always said, matter of factly, I'm sorry I killed the children. I really didn't mean know that they were there. I didn't mean to do that. But no, I'm not sorry about the rest of them. They deserved it. So as you had said before, you spent time getting to know the victims as, as you researched your book. And one of the survivors of the murders was Charles Cohen, the son. And Charles had a brother as well. Uh, Leonard. Could you tell us about what happened to Charles and his brother after their parents and, and grandmother were murdered? Yeah, so it's interesting. Charles was there in the apartment when this happened, like I said, and he was taken downstairs to the police station. And it's interesting because they brought Howard Unruh in at the same time, and the two of them locked eyes for a few minutes, you know, after this horrible thing had happened. Um, Charles was taken to relatives who lived in Philadelphia and he was kind of went from relative to relative. And by all accounts, and I interviewed Charles Cohen's wife kind of extensively for this. She said he had a really hard time. You know, obviously he had witnessed all this and he was traumatized by it, but he didn't have one stable home after this happened. And he was with an aunt. He was with a cousin. Um, he ended up though, becoming very successful. He got married. He was a salesman and did quite well. He had a very solid family. And he, he kind of disappeared after this happened. You didn't hear, there were no newspaper reports or anything as him as a young man. He reappeared in 1980 when they dropped the indictments and started giving interviews. And the reason for that is that he was afraid that Howard Unruh, because there were no murder indictments against him anymore, was going to be released. 
And so he would show up in court every year with his family. And his wife said it almost killed him to have to come in year after year and look at this man who had killed his whole family and have to sit there and go through it again. It was like being victimized again, over and over again. But he had, by all accounts, was a very successful man. I mean, he had a great family life. His daughters were all very close and successful. But the one thing I have to say that's very strange about this, all he wanted was for Harold Unruh to die. And he said he could spit on his grave and get on with the rest of his life. That's what he wanted. Well, he had a stroke and he died. And it was he was buried on the exact day that these massacres, you know, the anniversary of these massacres, he was buried on September 6th. And Howard Unruh outlived him by a month. Did I read somewhere that there is a connection between Charles Cohen and the Parkland school shooting? Yes. Charles Cohen's granddaughter was attending the Parkland, Parkland, uh, uh, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas School, and was there the day of the Parkland shootings. She wasn't in the building. If you look at that school, it's not one big building like most high schools. It's more like a college campus with a bunch of different separate buildings with a courtyard in the middle. So she wasn't in the same building where it was happening, but they had locked down the school and she was in this closet. And she was thinking about, I interviewed her for this book. It was very, very hard. She's very traumatized by the whole thing. But she said she was sitting in that closet and she just kept thinking of her grandfather, that 68 years before he was sitting in a closet in the first mass shooting in the country. And now here she is, you know, these years later, sitting in a closet. Yeah. So it was very interesting. Uh, Leonard, the oldest Cohen's son, was away in the army and was allowed back for the funeral and moved back into the Cohen apartment uh, by himself after the murders. Um, yeah, so the, the information about Leonard was very interesting, and the family would not give me a whole lot. And I had to dig and dig and dig. Leonard was only 17 when this happened. He was sort of a troubled kid. He was, uh, whether he was um, emotionally distraught, I don't know what the issue was, but he had a lot of problems. And so the parents finally had just exhausted themselves. So they, they had him enlist in the military. He had only just enlisted, you know, I think he had gone in maybe that summer, July, and this happened in September. So he'd only been in the military for a few months and they gave him leave to come home. And then he was discharged and he was, cause he was only 17. He went to live with these relatives too. And there was just a lot of trouble with Leonard. Leonard at one point decided he was going to go back and live in this apartment and he was going to become a pharmacist and open it up. And he kind of moved back in to this almost crime scene kind of atmosphere. I mean, they certainly, the police had opened it up that he could live there, but I mean, there was broken glass, you know, the, the, there were holes in the closet door and blood where his mother had been shot. And he decided he was just going to live in there and I don't think the family was happy about that. Eventually they sold the building. He was sort of a strange kind of character. Um, he then went on and attempted to kill himself in 1951, two years after this happened. And his, he had a wife, a very young wife who was eight months pregnant and they both had the suicide pact that they were going to kill themselves. Unfortunately she died. They did deliver the baby. The baby lived 
and um, Leonard lived. Um, and the baby was put up for adoption. So he had this kind of very strange, he would, um, Charles and he were not close. In fact, Marion Cohen told me that every time that Leonard would reach out to Charles or they, he would get involved in any way, it was always just bad news. It was just something. Did the surviving relatives of the victims, uh, did they like kind of band together at any point to try and get unruh? Uh, put to death. Do you know much about the victims, uh, loved ones, and how they coped with the heartbreak? Were, were they out for revenge? Yeah, I think the family members were all very, very angry that he was committed to the psychiatric hospital. I think they expected at some point that he was going to fa- be found sane to stand trial or competent to stand trial. And I think they were sort of waiting for it and it never happened. I don't think that they ever banded together to try to do anything collectively. I think that what happened is after this incident, some of them moved on. They moved out. They, they wanted to get away from it all. I did not hear ever of them all kind of getting together to try to petition the court to, to bring Howard back to stand for trial. No. And I think they kind of learned to live with it as time went on. Did Unruh's mother uh, stick by him? Yes. She actually, um, there was a Pulitzer Prize winning New York Times article. I think his name was Meyer Berger, who wrote an article in the New York Times. And he won Pulitzer and got a $1,000 prize. And he gave it to Frida Unruh. And I think it's sort of remarkable that he would do that, that he would recognize this woman is just suffering. She was living with her sister and brother-in-law and they kind of wanted her out. People were really angry with her. They kind of blamed her for the whole thing. And it was making everybody uncomfortable. So she got this money and she moved. And she kind of moved close to where the hospital was. And she would visited him until she died. And she's buried with him. So the subtitle to your book, The True Story of America's First Recorded Mass Shooting. What does that mean? Well, I think this is the very first one that's on record. I don't know if this happened at some point before and we don't know about it. I don't know. This is the very first one post-war that every bit of it was documented. Uh, I think that's what's meant by it. So is Unruh considered a spree killer? Yeah, he was, the f- he was a spree killer. But it's funny because his killing was of two different kinds. There was the revenge killing where he felt he was going to go get these people back. And he had a definite list and he had reasons for wanting them to be, uh, to get revenge on them. And then there was the other kind where he was sort of a spree shooter that was just at some point, he just started shooting anybody that was in his path, anything that moved, he was shooting at it. Um, and there was a psychiatrist that was very interesting that said uh, you can see if you look at the whole sequence of events, when he went into war mode, he was back in war. He just, everything glazed over and he was in combat again. And he, he said, you can look at the sequence of events and see exactly when that happened. It happened right after he shot the insurance man at the steps of the pharmacy that everything just spiraled and it became a different kind of shooting. 
So there have been so many mass shootings in the United States in the last few years, as we all know. But in 1949, again, this was all brand new. Do you see similarities between the Kramer Hill shootings and what's happening now? Or, or is it hard to compare? I think that this very first shooting, if you look at it, all the moving pieces, you're going to find them in every single spree shooting after that. There's some elements that they all have in common, that the perpetrator was ostracized. They were disenfranchised. They were, they were angry, obviously. They were extremely angry. They felt that they had been wronged. They felt that people had done these things to them. They weren't treated fairly. They were somehow sitting outside of society looking in, and that's exactly how Howard felt. He felt for a man in 1949, he had failed in every single way possible. He couldn't hold a job. He was never going to get married. He was gay. And if you look at all these spree shooters, they hold some of those same elements. So there's certainly correlations. Gosh, well, I, I really appreciate you spending some time here with us. Uh, just riveting. So can you tell us a little bit about your website? Yeah, my website is ellenjgreen.com. There's all the information about this book on it, as well as the other novels. And I continue to update it. I'm going to put a blog in just outlining a lot of the research that I did that people have found interesting about this case. Just curious. So when a new shooting occurs, do you find this one referenced by people uh, in articles? Do you get contacted by reporters? I think a little bit on Twitter. You'll see these discussions about whatever is happening, and then um, this book will pop up. I think it's happening more and more. Well, thank you again for your time. No, thank you for having me. Once again, I have been speaking to Ellen Green, author of Murder in the Neighborhood, the true story of America's first recorded mass shooting. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow. of being upsold at gyms my guy you're currently a base member for 90 dollars more i can upgrade you to our shred membership for 130 more you'll be a swole member and for just 300 more you'll reach sweat platinum at planet fitness you'll get energy without the upsell never pushy always free fitness training and equipment for every workout it's fitness that fits your budget join planet fitness for just one dollar down and ten dollars a month cancel anytime deal ends friday may 10th see home club for details Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. 
Listen to Nerd Wallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.